the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. I'm Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. And Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CGSW 90.9 FM. We are broadcasting slash podcasting from Calgary on Treaty 7 land. Sprawlcast is a show for curious Albertans who want more than the daily news grind. We don't do press release journalism and we work to bring you stories and conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. I don't know when truth became optional in politics. The October municipal election in Calgary is going to be a lively one. Mayor Nahed Nenshi has announced that he won't be running again, and that leaves at least seven council seats up for grabs. One of those seats is Ward 7, where Councillor Drew Farrell has served Calgarians since she was first elected in 2001. She's one of the city's longest-serving councillors, and her career has been marked by an unabashedly progressive view of the city's future. She's pushed for more affordable housing, public transit projects like the Green Line, and pedestrian infrastructure like the Peace Bridge. Now, a lot of us know about Councillor Drew Farrell from what she's done on council, and we'll hear more about that in this episode. But what was Farrell's life like before that? And what's next for her? Well, the Sprawls Municipal Politics reporter, Jeremy Appel, sat down with Farrell to discuss this and more. Let's listen in now to their conversation. I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your life before politics. Tell me, tell me about your upbringing and, and, and sort of uh, your career trajectory and your decision to enter public life. Well, I, I had a, a very um, stable upbringing with a loving family. My, my parents were quite progressive and we would discuss politics at home around the dinner table. Um, my father had a, a, his own business. He was an entrepreneur, but um, I learned about the term living wage when I was a little kid long before um, before it was sort of in the popular discourse. And my mother was um, very interested and talked a lot about the civil rights movement in the US. So we would talk a lot about, um, about racism and discrimination and, and equity, maybe not using those terms of the day in, in the early 60s, but um, I think that helped form my values. And I lost my father when I was 15. And that was a very, very difficult time for the whole family. And it, but it, uh, I think, taught me empathy. And, um, you know, understanding at an early age, what, you know, grief was all about. So, you know, it's defining moments, really. And then when I went into design school and, and became a clothing designer and had a um, clothing business with my husband, and we exported all through the U.S. And um, that was maybe about 17 years that I did clothing. And, you know, rewarding in one area where I, um, you know, it, it feed, fed my creative soul. And I... Um, I love that aspect of color and design and texture. Um, but I, I also did a huge amount of volunteering for my community. And, and that sort of seeded the decision to run for council was I was on my community board. Um, I was on the community planning committee as the chair in Hillhurst Sunnyside, very active neighborhood but also chaired an organization called the Inner City Coalition, which comprised of about 50 plus community associations that talked about things like density and sustainability. And so it, it, um, it just paved the way to a decision to, to get into politics. I also was the head of our 
the Hill or the Kensington um, Business Association, and so brought you know, those different perspectives to the role as member of council. So that's interesting that you were a business owner and a business owner in the fashion industry. I don't think that's something that most people associate with uh, left-wing politics. Were, were you an outlier in there? I mean, like you were part of the business association. Uh, were there a lot of uh, disagreements you had with other people in the industry? No, no. Um, I think because predominantly small business, um, what it means to be an entrepreneur, um, take risks. And, and then my experience with, with different small businesses within the Kensington area. My mother also, after my father died, um, started a, a women's clothing store on 17th Avenue. And I worked with her and designed accessories for her store. So I saw the struggles of, of people who are trying to survive in, in small business. And I, I think they're very linked to, uh, to I, I don't see them as antithetical to the work that I do around justice and, and, uh, and equity and poverty. Small business is, is a lifeblood of our society and we often neglect it. So no, I don't see that as, as working against those values. I see that very much as part of those values. And certainly my experience with my father um, helped teach me how important it was to have like homegrown local entrepreneurs trying to survive and thrive in today's society. Now, you mentioned growing up, uh, you know, in the shadow of the civil rights movement, and there have been quite a few uh, political movement since like uh comes to mind is the struggle against apartheid in south africa and the women's movement of course were, were you involved in in these sorts of struggles well i certainly had opinions on them and certainly with the south african apartheid had very strong opinions in solidarity with with the people striving for justice um you're really the only Thing that I did was you know, join in boycotts. I'm not sure how effective they were, but I supported them. Um, and then we always talked about politics at home. And it was just, it was, um, it was part of the conversation. So we were never shied away from having strong opinions and, and debating those opinions and hopefully adjusting and reforming those opinions. So it just became part of my DNA thinking about the world around me. I, I um, was, I've always been interested in world dynamics and you know, act locally, think globally is part of how I grew up. Fast forward to 2001 and you're elected to council. Um, who do you run against? Who's your opponent? Well, I didn't, I, I like to think I didn't run against anyone. I I, uh, I ran for a position, so there were there was a full slate of uh, of candidates, and I did quite well. I think partly because, or largely because, I had so many connections within within the ward and within the community, and was supported by by um, both grassroots. Um, in organizations and individuals, but also business, which was interesting. So I, I um, have varied interests and tried to provide a broad perspective on what I would um, try and do with the job. But we're, like, was there an incumbent that you no. were trying? No, um, Bev Longstaff was the previous councillor. Um, I really enjoyed working with Bev. We're a very progressive councillor uh, who decided to run for mayor. And that's when, uh, when the seat became available, then I decided to throw my name in the ring. And was this something that uh, you saw yourself doing for, I mean, maybe not specifically 20 years, but sort of a long-term project? Or was it more of like a... Yeah, I'll give it a try, see what happens. Here we are. 
I, I never anticipated staying 20 years. I sort of thought that I would um, get in, stay a couple of terms and then leave. Uh, the, the, um, I can't imagine staying that long if I hadn't found, constantly found new things to uh, sink my teeth into. And, and so that you could look at the job through a few perspectives. You can look at the job as a change agent and that's why I ran. Um, and, and, or you can look at the job as just simply maintaining the status quo and, and um, reacting to situation. And I, um, there was a lot of work to do. So I, I uh, also realized it takes time to really make a difference. So, uh, um, yeah, no, I never saw this as a life career at all. It sort of been evolved into it. Um, but if I would have ever been bored or found that I was stagnating, I would have backed out sooner. And uh, what was it that kept you running? It was just there were, kept being more and more issues that you felt that you were best suited to address? Well, I, you know, I looked at my original campaign brochure not that long ago and, and uh, the, the topics that were um, interesting to me then are remain the issue of smart growth, how we grow our city um, to be more sustainable environmentally, fiscally, socially, the idea of, uh, of building a more equitable city. Um, transforming our downtown, it, it's, uh, that's a lifetime of, of uh, commitment and will require probably another lifetime to get the downtown to turn around. East Village, the idea of transit-oriented development, um, changing the city so that it's more walkable, more accessible, uh, greener. Um, the commitment around climate change is something that I care deeply about. Those have been um, constants throughout my career. And I, um, I've learned, certainly become more knowledgeable and more sophisticated, but I, I know that with this job, if you approach it in the right way, you never stop learning. You just learn to know what you don't know. And who, who was the mayor in 2001 when you were? When it you was were Dave Brown-Kanye and I were elected together. He was a councillor prior to running for mayor and uh, and we got elected at the same time for he ran as mayor and I ran as councillor. We didn't get along initially. It was quite interesting, um, but we ended up becoming very good friends. And but it was initially um, a lot of fireworks between us. And then we really shared a vision around around us, East Village specifically, but the idea of beauty, um, building quality, um, building things to last, those are, those are values that we shared. You know I'm going to ask to tell me more about the uh, initial fireworks between yourself and uh, <laughs> uh, Mayor Brown-Kanye. Oh, I think we just um, maybe didn't know each other well. Um, I remember when the first term he was speaking at a at a chamber event and suggested the number of the, the members of council he thought shouldn't get elected again and i was one of them so we um we had it out but we ended up um really learning to respect each other's opinion and work together he had an extraordinary ability to get things done a very creative thinker around solutions if and I helped define I helped define the problem, and he would often find the solution. For example, East Village was something I ran on. Um, just the the lack of hope for this community that was right next to the downtown. It would had at the confluence of two rivers and had been languishing for decades. Um, that was a battle that I took on, and then um, he, he was able to find financial mechanisms to sort of take the vision that I had and help bring it to fruition. So I thought we made a good team. So initially, was it was it like a 
personal, like you just rubbed each other the wrong way, or was it was 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 there a significant difference in vision between yourself and the mayor of the day? It could have been that. It's hard to say. It was so long ago. I laugh at it now. Um, it, it must have been stressful then, but you know, we we just we stayed in touch, and I really enjoyed him as a mayor. Um, very different than the existing mayor, current uh, Mayor Nancy, but we we enjoyed each other. So it, it was short lived. This tension, it was um, it, it was uh, an interesting evolution of a relationship, and it goes to show that if you try and find common ground with somebody, you generally can find a way to work together to make the city better. And isn't that what we were both there for? And then, of course, uh, Mayor Nenshi, as you just alluded to, was elected in 2010. What what did you make of him at the time? I know he he was a political outsider. Um, you know, obviously the uh, the first Muslim mayor in North America. But in, in terms of his um, broader vision for the city, how how did it sort of did it fit in with yours? I I I knew Mayor Nenshi before he got elected. I've known him for a number of years. We sat on the Imagine Calgary uh, working group together. So I, um, I knew he was smart and, and, uh, and energetic and would bring a, a really new perspective to the city. So I was thrilled when he got elected. It, it um, I, I think Cal, Calgarians woke up the next morning and saw themselves differently. Maybe they surprised themselves that they would elect a very progressive, um, intellectual Muslim mayor. Um, and that isn't how I, I didn't see Nahad as, as a Muslim mayor. I saw him as a, a, a very smart um, person who cared deeply about the city. And his first campaigns, you know, speaking in, in campaigning in full sentences was a real treat. And, you know, the advent of populist um, politics was sort of starting to happen then. Um, and he transcended that. And it, that was a pleasure. And through your 20 years on council, two different mayors, how have you seen the, the sort of the, the city evolve? in terms of uh, not just, you know, sort of physically with say like East Village and, and those types of things, but also I guess in terms of the discourse in the city. Well, I think um, in some ways we have gone backwards in the last number of years. You know, Calgary has always seen itself as a bit of a big, small town and and although we like to think of ourselves as mavericks, we're often really afraid of change. And, and so quite small C conservative in our approach to things. But, you know, I, I really saw Calgary as starting to take these giant leaps forward, you know, with the arts, with, uh, with development, with um, sort of our more global perspective. Uh, I think in the last while, perhaps at the advent of really partisan tribal politics, I see a, a real drive to take us backwards. And that worries me because I don't think anyone wins with that. And do you think that that has to do with the fact that prior to 2015, there was this you know political giant of the pc party that was the only game in town so people were maybe more pragmatic and then the ndp gets selected and suddenly we have a two-party system do you, like what role do you think that played in uh sort of and i i don't mean to blame the ndp for this but just the no. uh, you know coarsening our uh political discussion I don't know if that had anything to do with that. I saw the real shift when, and this is a, a global phenomenon, this isn't unique to Calgary, but um, th th there was 
the advent of the Manning Center. They started in Calgary. They specifically wanted to control Calgary City Council. It was funded by a handful of suburban developers. There's a very famous video that one of the participants of one of these meetings ended up filming, filming it, and then it went public. But it was really an effort to control council. So it was an interesting combination of the Manning Center, you know, a right-wing think tank, and a partnership with suburban developers, which um, I think was an unholy marriage, frankly, because we're talking about how to, how to pay for growth. And so where was the politics of it? And where was the um, self-interest? But they, they tried to weigh into city politics and control it like I have never seen before. I think that's scary. And, and so then out of that came the effort to, for political action committees. And, but we're seeing this around the world. And you know, the beauty of cities is it's nonpartisan. And you know, it's pretty hard to be partisan when you're delivering clean water or you know, garbage collection or, or transit. I mean, what's partisan about delivering services that Calgarians need? Um, and, and so to boil everything down to a, you know, right or left, is it left to have clean water supply? You know, is it left to have a, I, I, I don't think so. I think some people would say it is well, uh, well, like I, people on the left because um, the right is often uh, trying to obstruct these uh, sorts of projects. Well, I think that's a new thing. Uh, when I, first got elected, we had members of council, I wouldn't, I didn't even know who they, who they leaned toward as far as, you know, provincial or federal politics, it wasn't discussed. And, and it would depend, it would really boil down to the, uh, each individual decision, if a member of council voted uh, against something I wanted, you know, I, we would just agree to disagree, kind of dust yourself off and go for lunch. And this, this partisanship, this tribalism that's, that's entering politics, um, that is a new phenomenon and it is a very dangerous one and we should fight it. So I would hope with this new council, they can find ways to find common ground and, and let go of these, these partisan um, issues and just talk about what's best for Calgarians as a whole. Do you have a, a sort of a successor in mind? I know there are three candidates right now running in Ward 7. One who used to work for you uh, quite some time ago, uh, Heather oh, McRae. Yeah. Um, and uh, also uh, Marilyn North Pagan, who would be, I believe, the first uh, Blackfoot uh, Pecani woman to be elected to council. Have, have you spoken to either of them about their campaigns? No, no, I haven't. Um, I'm certainly open to talking to any candidate who wants to learn about the issues and learn about the ward. But no, I, I do not have a successor in mind. Uh, I don't believe you can choose your successor. That's up to my constituents and Calgarians to decide. And they will decide on the best candidate for the time. So, and I fully suspect that there will be more candidates. It'll be an open ward. And it's only been a couple of weeks since I announced, and I, I expect there will be more candidates coming. So, so you're, you're not going to make an, endor an endorsement? No, I won't. No. What about for mayor? Uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I think there's still um, some people that will come forward as, as well. And I'll have to make a decision whether I publicly talk about candidates. I might retweet a few people <laughs> but, uh, and, and speak privately with, with people who are asking my opinion. But um, at this point, no, I don't have a favorite. I know some people who I would rather not be. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about- I'm not about going to speak about that. I think uh, what we need to do is, I don't know when truth became optional in politics. And uh, I believe that if you run a dirty campaign, that's how you will govern. And so I hold 
everyone up to real, including myself, up to a high standard of, you know, speak the truth, um, be honest about your beliefs and the way you're going to vote in the future, um, what you support and what you don't, and let the let the electorate decide that. But uh, you can't be all things to all people. You also have to recognize that. But uh, I, we're seeing more and more where where people are just saying anything, and that is um, that's a scary proposition just for society. Now, of course, on any board, you have people who share your vision and core beliefs, and you have people who don't, who um, are frustrating to deal with, I guess you could say. Um, on city council, I mean, the stakes are a lot higher. Uh, so th- so tell me a bit about because obviously there are counselors you see eye to eye with and those you don't. So uh, tell, tell me a bit about that. I, I mean, I can think of a few in, in each category. Um, I suspect you may have been uh, referring to in uh, your previous answer to uh, Councillor Farkas who's uh, running for mayor. But yeah, I guess, tell, tell me a bit about how you navigate the different relationships you have with your colleagues on council. Well, I think um, in order to be successful on council, you have to be able to build relationships. You're one vote and you need eight votes to get anything through. Um, you also need to develop relationships with city administration. They're the experts. And so if, uh, if you can't work in a respectful environment and find a way to work together, then I think you're a failure as, as, a, as a politician. Uh, what we're seeing on this particular council is some members, of, you know, if I brought a motion forward that said that sun will rise in the East, um, they would probably vote against it. And, and that, I think, is that weakening, that hyperpartisan um, ship that's entering into politics. And um, I, I think we should all be saying that that's not acceptable. But I would say the vast majority of council members will look at the issue and, and vote on the issue. So uh, it... it we still have the majority of members of council who will who will make a decision based on that, and I think that's the strength of of municipal politics. And are there councillors who you don't see eye to eye with politically, but you actually get along with quite well, you know, outside of the council chambers, or I, are those days past? I think um, <laughs> even people I I get along with politically, or we, we generally see, I mean, there's always tension there. And, and you just have to learn it's it's human nature and you just have to learn to work with people um, in all aspects of life. So it's maybe maturity there, but I, um, I am seeing an erosion of, of civic discourse. Um, And I think, this new council will have an opportunity to get that back. I don't really dismiss anyone as um, as a fait accompli. I try and make an effort to to explain why I want to go a certain direction. One of the best advice, uh, pieces of advice I ever had was a former city manager who um, I, I tend to be further... I, I tend to be way ahead in the, my thinking. Um, I mean, I think Don Braid once said, I, I brought the city of Calgary kicking and screaming into the 21st century. <laughs> so well, the advice that he gave was leave breadcrumbs, explain why you're doing things and maybe um, make decisions in an incremental way that helps move the city forward gradually rather than in giant leaps. And that, that was very sound advice. So when I'm working with, with my colleagues, I, I try and um, explain why I think this is good for the city, but also 
absorb new information from them on, on, on their perspective, because we bring ward perspective as well, and that's more you know, regional parts of the city, and then adapt my opinion to help reach consensus. And it's been very successful. I've had very few failures in, in my 20 years. When you mentioned earlier um, about um, how some of your opponents have misrepresented your positions and lied about you and attacked you personally, I mean, surely you're referring to to some people in particular. Who? No, I that that's not who I am. I, um, <laughs> you know, I won I won those elections, and I I just dusted myself off and and moved forward and did the work. And I worked very hard, and I I um, have always looked at the lens of am I making decisions that work for the next generation. I think that's the lens that I always um, found helped me make good decisions or decisions that fit my values is, does it make the city better for the next generation? And it's really hard for politicians to make long-term decisions because the, the value of those decisions aren't always readily apparent. And, and so if, and, and you have to sometimes take those risks. The Peace Bridge is one example. Um, I knew that was a decision, a good decision for the future uh, and, and would be a challenge for the present, but it, it, it was worth it and I'd do it again. Yeah, I was actually speaking to Brian uh, Pincott recently uh, for a piece I was working on. And he mentioned the Peace Bridge in particular as sort of a, a struggle for him to justify to his constituents who don't, who's, you know, it's not in his word. Mm -hmm. um, did, it is in your word, right? It is. Yeah. Okay. And did, did you also have challenges justifying it <laughs> to your constituents who were actually directly affected by it? Or was it an easier sell to them? I, I, that was certainly a mix. I mean, it was the, it was political for a whole number of reasons. It came up as a, it's sort of during an election period, sort of at a time when we were starting to see these hyper-partisan elections. It was the first really major infrastructure for pedestrians and cyclists exclusively, other than our pathway system. And we spend, you know, the same day as we voted on the Peace Bridge, we spent a couple of billion dollars on transportation projects, road projects. So it was, I think, controversial because it was for active mobility. It was also controversial because it was, it was unabashedly beautiful. And I remember, <laughs> I remember my brother was uh, at a dinner party and somebody at the party um, found out he was my brother and said, you tell your sister that if we want beauty, we will go to Brussels or Paris, but in Calgary, we just need it to work. And I, th I think that to me showed that um, we're uh, a, sit a boom and bust city. A lot of people moved here to, uh, to make their fortune and then had no intention of, of living here. When they got older, they planned on leaving and retiring elsewhere. And, and those long-term investments um, were seen as wasteful because this was a place where you, you, you made your money. Um, and, and so that was a struggle, but there were also people who really, really loved the idea of a beautiful bridge over our beautiful river. And, and so when we had the opening, 7,000 people showed up at the opening of the Peace Bridge. And within... Uh, a couple of weeks, my number one opponent who was campaigning against the Peace Bridge had his campaign literature, um, the photograph of, of him, his headshot on the Peace Bridge. So I, I sort of figured that uh, it was going to be okay. And what were some, uh, obviously the Peace Bridge is one of them, another is uh, East Village. Uh, but what were, what would you say were your major accomplishments in your 20 years on council and how, 
and why do you consider them um, to be uh, particularly noteworthy? Um, well, you know, it's very hard after 20 years to come up with a, a list of accomplishments. There are many um, from um, accessibility to East Village. I think the most physical is, is East Village, um, some major downtown projects, the River Pathway, Eau Claire, Memorial Drive, curbside recycling. That was the first motion I brought forward, by the way, was in 2002, I think. Uh, I brought forward a motion to look at curbside recycling and composting, and it took 10 years. So it goes to show how you have to be persistent in order to get things done. But I, I think what I'm most proud of is, is that I, I based my decisions on how it will help the next generation. So you know, from climate to sustainability, to, to affordable housing, to equity, it's always through that lens. And that's what I'm most proud of. I've never made decisions based on tomorrow's headlines. Um, I'm, I was open to making difficult decisions that maybe weren't popular for the day. I, it's not like I didn't listen to my constituents. I did. I listened. I consulted. I, um, I adapted. I tried to find ways to build consensus. And then I made a decision. But it was always, always through that lens. And that's what I'm most proud of. I never deviated from that. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask about the green line because uh, you've been a staunch proponent of that as, as well as other counselors who uh, don't necessarily fall where you do on the political spectrum. Of course, uh, it's had some roadblocks, I would say, from the provincial government. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, do you think it's going to get built in full? At some, like at some point in the near future? I hope so. It, it's the right thing to do. It's, it's a project that will help bring Calgary into the future. We know that the future of transportation is public transport. It, it's the most efficient use of space and it's the most efficient use of transportation dollars. And Calgary desperately needs it. We need it for the jobs during construction and we definitely need it for equitable transportation system that serves a, a huge part of our city. I, I believe that we will go forward with a portion of it now. Um, we have funding from the city, we have funding from the federal government and it's really up to the province if it, if it goes the whole distance. And I'm not sure why they don't see value in this project. It's, um, it's quite distressing considering the rigor that we've gone through to analyze the consultation, years and years of the, the most in-depth consultation I've ever seen. And to then at the 11th hour say that it, uh, it's a train to nowhere. That's insulting to every community along the route. It's the first really urban train system that we will have. We've got a hub and spoke LRT system. It works very well. It serves Calgary very well. But the Green Line is a truly urban system that creates, that will create places, community hubs all along its length. And and uh, it's, it's, it's critical for the future. So regardless of whether it happens um, in, its, it, in full, in the next couple of years, it will happen. It's just the right thing to do. It's the way you plan modern cities. Question future council candidates, mayor candidates, whether they support it. The, the worst thing would be we elect a new council that, that un does all the amazing work. We've already put 500 million or more into this project through analysis. And, and so hold your representative's feet to the fire and sing it from the rooftops. 
it's interesting what we've seen in the last little while, and it gives me a tremendous amount of hope, is we're seeing young people get involved. And they're changing the game. They want different things than my generation wants. And I want you know, my generation, the older generation, to, to be comfortable, to have a good life. But we have to build a city for the future. And, and so what we saw with the Southwest Bus Rapid Transit, we saw you know, students and, and you know, community advocates speaking out for public transit. When I first got elected, nobody spoke out for public transit. And people are more global now. They've traveled. They see how people get around around the world. And they know public transit is, is the way of the future. And they're willing to speak out for it. I hope that through this upcoming election, we have that generation get behind candidates that they support and, and help them get elected. And I hope younger people also run and bring that fresh perspective to the council table. But you won't endorse them if they do. <laughs> um, I'm waiting for uh, to see all the candidates, in, but maybe I will. I, we'll see. If there's somebody that really inspires me, then, um, then I, um, I, might, I might help and help campaign. And, but it's a little early on, and I don't think Calgarians are particularly thinking about the election yet. You know, insiders are, but I don't think Calgarians are. Yeah, nerds like me are. But yeah, yeah, we'll we'll live and breathe it until the election day. Um, I wanted to ask you about fluoridation. Oh um, yeah, because <laughs> I think that that's one issue where a lot of people who are otherwise strong supporters of you and the work you do uh, sort of um, wonder where you're coming from on this issue. So let's, let's clear the air here. What is your position on fluoridation? I, I'm not a fan of water fluoridation. 1% of our population or 1% of our drinking water is actually consumed and the rest goes down the toilet, water the lawn. Uh, I'm concerned about dental health. And what, what I probably haven't been very good at getting the message out is water fluoridation isn't going to sell, solve the, men, the dental health crisis that we're experiencing in North America. And tooth decay is going up regardless of whether a city fluoridates or not, tooth decay is on the rise. And in Alberta, we have the most expensive dental care in the country. It's unaffordable. And so we need, to, we need to be broader. So it's really not about fluoridating water. What worried me about water fluoridation is people thought they were done. It's like a silver bullet. They could vote for this and then we don't talk about it again. And meanwhile, the dental health of children is deteriorating. So it's it was oversimplified as a solution. And it's not a silver bullet. We need to be much broader. And we need affordable dental care for children in low income. Um, and we need to talk about diet and health. And we're getting away with not talking about those really important things. And so whether we put it back in the water or not, um, that is up for discussion for a future council. But we can't lose sight of the need for better health for our children. And that's more complicated. Well, and I think a lot of people, like the mayor, would agree with you that fluoridation isn't a silver bullet. It's not going to do much on its own, but it's something and it's something that the city can do, unlike something like uh, having uh, you know, a national dental care program like they do in the UK. That's outside of your control as a city councillor. But fluoridation is something you can do. So how, how do you respond to that line of uh, criticism? But the conversation stopped there. I think it, it made us feel comfortable that we'd done all we needed to do. And in the 
Meanwhile, Edmonton, a city that fluoridates, the tooth decay is on the rise. It's, it's more complicated than that. It's kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, homeless shelters versus housing for people. Uh, it, it, it's, if we build another homeless shelter, we may think that we've done our bit, but we still have homelessness. And, and so it, it's, um, it's a complicated problem that needs a complicated solution, a systemic solution. And the issue of water fluoridation has oversimplified it to the point where people have been absolved of a responsibility. Yeah, I, I want to bring it back now to um, some of the criticisms you faced, which you know we've been alluding to previously. But I wanted to ask about them more specifically um, because there seems to me to be sort of a uniquely visceral uh, hatred of you in some circles and, and not just you but uh mayor nenshi mm-hmm. and evan woolley and you know um diane collie urquhart um what 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 do you think's going on there why you know these like save calgary i mean you're like their public mm-hmm. enemy number one and they keep trying to defeat you or kept trying to <laughs> defeat you and you kept winning so uh, what what's going on there like i i know and I, I think there's certainly an element of misogyny there, but at the same time, they also, again, um, are strongly opposed to other politicians and attack them in similar disparaging, um, you know, fact-free ways and who aren't women. So, uh, I mean, what's going on there? Oh, I think there is a certain amount of misogyny there. I mean, I'm a, a small, soft-spoken woman who um, probably should support powerful men, and, and so I—I've um, been very effective. And generally, when I would bring an issue forward, it was well researched. I had done a significant amount of background work and consultation, and was generally successful. So. Uh, I think that for people who didn't like or don't like a more forward thinking city, that that may be threatening to them. And so if what better than to attack the individual? Uh, But it, you know, I I know that uh, one member of the media said I'm the toughest politician he's ever seen. And I, I'm, I'm actually not tough. I'm a big softy and I have a lot of compassion, but I am focused. I know what I want to achieve. And I, I uh, took all that as just noise. And so I just let it rush over me and kept my eye on the ball. But it, it's, uh, it was been interesting because yes it has been more um more visceral and and you know the media plays some role in that as well so you know one member of media referred to me for years about as drew the shrew and you know that that's just a misogynist term um initially when I first got elected, almost every article included something to do with my size. I'm a very small woman um, or what I wore and my appearance. And I hope that we hold the media to a higher standard as well, because that um, that's demeaning to women. And and uh, it certainly doesn't help women want to run. It, it's a deterrent. And we need more diverse voices. We need all genders around the table and we need the diversity that is Calgary. Let's celebrate it. Let's reflect it. And um, that certain columnist who I, I know you're not keen on naming names, but I'll, I'll name him uh, Rick Bell. <laughs> Why did he stop calling you that? 
did did someone from your team reach out to him being like that's going a little too far or was it he got bored he he found some other shiny object to chase maybe i mean during the peace bridge the um the media saw blood in the water and it it became um quite shocking in its intensity it was um I like to say that the peace bridge just really reflects the lashes on my back, the cross hatches. Um, but I, I think during the opening of the peace bridge, the, it, it was a year and a half of constant, constant um, misinformation, hostility, just outrage for you know, a project that's actually quite small. Interesting, at the time we approved the Peace Bridge, there was a temporary, um, temporary, um, what am I trying to say? Temporary off-ramp for for uh, one roadway that was $20 million. It was going to be temporary. And it's since been been uh, demolished and and so it was a throwaway, and that was at the same time as the Peace Bridge. So 20 million versus 25 million of permanent structure, it's become an emblem for the city. But I think um, the opening of the Peace Bridge, I cried the entire day. I can't tell you how many tears I've shed over that thing. I'd do it again, by the way. But I, I think the media then realized they went too far. And these were these. Were these tears of sadness or joy? <laughs> of all, it was an it was a unburdening of of unbelievable pressure over of a period of of years. I mean, I became the the focal point of this bridge, and and uh, I because I was defending it. It's the right. It was the right thing to do. And as I said, I would do it again. I think it's beautiful and it's, it's now become representative of our city, but it was, um, it, it was pretty brutal. So yeah, I think tears of relief, tears of 7,000 people showed up to celebrate it. It was tears of joy. Um, it, it was just an unburdening of a whole bunch of pressure. I never want to see another politician have to go through that kind of thing again. Um, and I would hope that um, that that Calgarians would step in and and try and protect those people if if they became the flashpoint for that kind of hostility. It was it was out of proportion. And now that you're leaving the political arena, do you intend on? Uh, continuing to speak out on issues um, as they pertain to the city, maybe as they pertain to the province, now that you're sort of unburdened by this, you know, focus on municipal issues or national issues, global issues. I mean, you talked about dental care. That's mm -hmm. something that's certainly out of the city's control. Um, so what, I guess, more generally, what does your career post-politics look like? Well, I'm going to take a, a, a break. I need a much needed rest and re restoration. Um, and then we'll see. I, I'm, I'm, pretty, um, I'm pretty open about my political views on social media and, and I don't limit them to city issues. I, I'm interested in, in provincial, federal, global issues. We're, we, we can't isolate ourselves from from the impacts of those. So I'm pretty open about my opinions and I probably will continue to be, I have to be careful. I don't want to be one of those retired politicians who, who chirps from the sidelines. <laughs> so I'll have to be judicious in, in how, how and what I comment on. And, but I, uh, no, I'm not going to go away. I, I, it, it's just part of who I am. And I, I, um, observe the world around me and and envision how it could be better and that won't stop 
And finally, uh, what advice do you have for young people who are getting engaged politically, whether it's running for office or doing political activism? What advice do you have for them based on your 20 years in public life? I, I love talking to young people to try and inspire them to use their voice because their voice matters. And what I have seen over the years, particularly with, with more young people speaking out, that, that their voice has a tremendous amount of power. And so use it. Don't waste it. We see a lower ratio of, of young voters, for example. If more people voted, they could change the world. But in between elections, um, lean in, speak up, tell us what you want. We're losing young people in the city. We're losing young people in the province of Alberta. That means the province without a future. They don't see their values reflected. So there are certain things that are non-negotiables to them. They, um, they believe in, in racial justice. They believe in, in LGBTQ justice. Those are non-negotiable. They need to see those values reflected in their governments. And they can do that by just using their voice. And there are a myriad of ways that they can do that. And so that's what I say to young people is I don't think they recognize how powerful they are. And a lot of people are afraid of that. They're afraid of young people having that power. And uh, so I, I encourage them. And as for the next you know, group of, of, of civic leaders, it, it's, you're leagued with humility. What I'm seeing lately is people are getting into politics and they're fully formed. They, they um, know everything. When you get into this position, you know nothing. There's so much to learn. 20 years in, I am still learning. And, and know what you don't know. And listen to the experts, because we have amazing people who work at the city, and they know their work. And, and uh, believe in servant leadership. I mean, we're here as as politicians to serve. And, and that has to be done with humility and grace. And, and I think finally, be kind because um, we need more kindness right now. And so I, I think those are, those are values that will just get us through life regardless of whether you're involved in the political arena. I think that's a great place to end. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Drew. Uh, I thought thank it was you. a very enlightening discussion and I look forward to seeing uh, what you do outside, outside of the uh, electoral realm. Uh, so thanks so much. End of line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. been listening to Sprawlcast. I'm Jeremy Clausus, and that was Jeremy Appel in conversation with Councillor Drew Farrell. You can find a full transcript of this episode on our website at sprawlcalgary.com. And hey, while you're there, you should also sign up for Jeremy Appel's newsletter, City Hall Sprawl. Just go to our website and click on Newsletters. Our theme music is by Dan D. Augustino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening and see you next time.